Yeah, all right. <clears throat> so Jesus is the gift, and Jesus gave his all for all of us. And this morning, I want to talk to those of you that are either in a really difficult, dark place, or those of you that have come to the light and come to the Lord, but maybe your light hasn't shined. Maybe the cares of this world and the struggles and the challenges of life have snuffed that light out in a lot of ways. A year ago, I lost my mom on the 22nd, so just a few days ago, a year ago. And I found myself really, really struggling with health issues and was in the hospital several days right before Christmas. It was a very, very difficult time. This will be my first Christmas without my mom. And that's hard for me because I loved her and this was her favorite time of the year. But even more than that, I know what it means to not have a family. I know what it means to not have hope. I know what it means to fully live and dwell in darkness. I know what it means to not have somebody to celebrate with and share with in my own life. And it hurt, and it was hard, and it was difficult. And if that's you this morning, I want to pray for you, and I want you to be comforted and strengthened and know that you're in a safe place. And you know what? It's okay to weep and cry. It's okay to feel that pain, but it's what we do with the pain that matters the most. Every day I battle fears. Every day I battle shame. Every day I battle confusion. Every day I battle hurt. Every day I battle rejection. Every single day. And I know it may seem like I do this so naturally because I do it so much, but honestly, every single time I'm nervous. Every single time I have to battle, what are people going to think? And I don't like that, but it also keeps me really dependent upon him. You know, because I, I don't really think that I'm that great, and that's okay. I think I'm great in him, but without him, I'm nothing. And this morning, what I really want to talk about for Christmas is the fact that in the midst of great darkness and in the midst of great pain, in the midst of great uncertainty, and in the midst of a very, very dark world, there's hope and there's light for you. There's a lot of people that will only come to church on a day like today. There's a lot of people out traveling, of course, but some of you may not have been for a while or you're just hit and miss for whatever reason, work, or whatever the reasons are. And there's some people that just have lost their fire and their passion. There's some people that aren't really excited about the Lord. There's some people that are bored with church. They're bored with God. They're bored with Christianity. There's a lot of people that have just simply have lost their spark. And I want to help reignite that spark. And it's not based on how loud I get or how much I how good I preach or how good the worship is. What it's really based on is the fact that Jesus loves and cares about us so much and that he really did come. He made himself a human. He made himself like us so that he could understand and that we could understand. He was tempted and he overcame every obstacle so that he could sympathize now and bring us comfort and consolation in the midst of difficult times. God would become a man so that we knew he really understood and that he really cared. And that's the beauty of the Christmas story. And whether Jesus was born tomorrow or in the spring or the summer, or, it doesn't matter. What matters is that he came. And what matters is that he came with a purpose. He came with a vision. He came with a mission. He came to transform lives like yours and to transform lives like mine. And so one of the things that I really love to do is I like to look at why things happen. I don't, I, maybe I'm the only one, but I really like to look at the original intent of something. I love to look at the 350 specific prophetic words in the Old Testament, prophecies that were fulfilled in the New Testament and by Jesus's life. I love that because what fascinates me is God and his just awesomeness, years and years and hundreds of years, thousands of years before Jesus would come, would prophesy all these specific events. And he'd use it, he'd use people like us to foretell the future. Not fortune tell, foretell. It's the difference between psychics and prophets. 
So God put his spirit in Old Testament patriarchs and would prophesy his son coming. And the way that these prophecies would be fulfilled, there's so many things that would have to come into play. It's better than the best theater. It's, it's so orchestrated, so divinely set up by God. And it fascinates me. Like, if these 10 things didn't happen, this wouldn't have happened. And so, you know, obviously it's Christmas time, and we know this one scripture, Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, unto us a child is born. It speaks of his humanity. A child being born is the humanity of God, that he had to actually come and be birthed by a virgin, by his mother Mary, on earth, and live life as a human being. But then the second part of that is the son is given, and that's that God gave you the best gift ever. The whole word given, a son is given, is, is Christ in his deity, is that the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit were celebrating the most awesome unity and love before creation and said to themselves, we've got to give this away. We're going to create mankind to celebrate in our love and to experience this kind of love that we have for one another. And they're going to experience it together with each other and with us. To, to know that and to understand that will change your life forever. That's why God is love. He's the ultimate of love. And the fact that he gave his son means that he didn't, he didn't consider whether you were worthy or not when he gave his son. In the most darkest time, in the most darkest place, Jesus comes. That's what he does. It goes on to say that we'll call him. You have to learn to call him for yourself. I know him as a wonderful counselor. I know him as the Prince of Peace. I know him personally as a mighty God who defeats all the enemies coming against my life. I know him as an everlasting father. I know that personally because I've experienced it when I was orphaned and raised by a single mom as a child. I know what it means to have a best friend, a bridegroom, a savior, a lover, and somebody that cares so deeply for me because I've experienced it. But you need to experience it for yourself. You can't keep hearing about it. And just hearing somebody else say it, make it your endeavor to know it for yourself. And so he really is a wonderful counselor. I preached a message not long ago, maybe a few months ago, titled, Who You Gonna Call? You can hear it on podcast or on SoundCloud. And the whole premise of the message is we're all looking for answers and guidance and counsel and advice about what we're gonna do next. Some of you are facing major crossroads in your life, major crossroads, where you're gonna live, what's gonna to happen to your job, your finances, your kids, your future, and knowing where to turn and who to talk to and who you're gonna call, both the Lord and somebody else in your life, and what wise counsel should look like and where we get it from is important. And I encourage you guys to go back and listen to that message again because getting advice and counsel in your life is important, and who you get it from is as equally important. And so he really is a wonderful counselor. He's not just a counselor, but he's a wonderful counselor. And so mighty is a term. Like one of the things that I have on my phone is the Blue Letter Bible. I have it on an app, and I treasure words a lot. Like what does mighty really mean? And I look up footnotes in my Bible and I read commentaries because I want to get a greater depth and understanding of these terms because it's not just so simple. Mighty is an overcoming militant warrior term that says he's put all things under his feet and he's made you his body and he's mighty and he's strong and he's powerful. And every enemy coming against your life is already defeated, but when it knocks on your door, you remind it and keep it under your feet instead of opening the door and getting beat up. All from one little word because it's important to me. I wanna know, I don't, just wanna, I don't wanna just hear about it anymore. At some point you get tired of going to church your whole life and hearing about it and it not actually becoming a reality for you. And I want it to be a reality for your life. Yes, Jesus is a father. He's a son and a father and every son ultimately becomes a father in the kingdom. It's God's pattern. Jesus has given sons and daughters and the greatest thing we can all learn First and foremost is not religion, not being a good churchgoer, not having all the right things down, but rather becoming a daughter or a son. It's the greatest thing God would teach me in my own life.
because I was orphaned and abandoned as a child by my millionaire blood father. And to this day, he doesn't call me or want any relationship to do with me. He's, I think he's almost 80, living in Beverly Hills. I have a half-brother and half-sister that I don't even know if they know that I exist. But my hope and my strength is in the dad I never had. And I can assure you, the core number one issue in society today that is causing all the darkness to wreak havoc is fatherlessness. It's number one. Abandonment, rejection, neglect, hurts, pains, lack of nourishment, lack of care, all stems from fatherlessness. We'll talk a little bit about that. But that's why the Lord refers to himself as a father. And you know what? He equally has a mothering heart inside of him. And I can show that to you in the Bible. Man and woman were created together in his image. But he, he, his primary nature and reference is a father because of what fathers bring and what fathers do and fatherlessness in this society. And so he's an everlasting father and he's the ultimate ultimate prince of peace. So all the peace we could ever want or need lies in him. So I understand these, and I understand this next verse. I love this next verse. His government and its peace will never end. Another version says we'll continue to progress and advance. So the government of Christ and the kingdom of God on earth is always growing and expanding. But guess what else is is equally growing and expanding? The darkness. Anybody know how, what the speed of darkness is? Anybody? Who can tell me what the speed of light is? It's like 186,000 miles an hour. Speed of light, guess how fast darkness is? Just as fast. You know why? Because darkness is the absence of light. So as soon as light's gone, as fast as the light goes is as fast as the darkness comes. Remove light out of your life and all you have is darkness. But light has the ability to triumph over darkness in an instant. It's way more powerful, way more quicker, and way more overcoming than the darkness. And so his government's never ending. It's always growing. And the government is not the White House. It's not the nation's government. It's the kingdom of God. And every week I want to remind you that when you get born again and come into the kingdom, you didn't just become a Christian. You entered into a family and you entered into God's kingdom established on earth. And that kingdom looks a lot different than the kingdom or the governments of the nations of the world because it's a government of peace and it has no end. It goes on to say he'll rule in fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity and the passionate commitment, I love this part, the passionate commitment of the Lord. He's so passionate and he's so committed for you. He's so passionate, he's so committed to our lives that he and the heaven's armies will make sure that it happens. And so I love this verse. This verse really gives you a very good picture of, of what and how. But there's a big question of why. And I love looking at the verse, just four verses before this one in verse two. Because this verse is quoted a couple times in the New Testament, but really gives us a very good picture of the mission of ultimately what Jesus was out to do, and that was to spell darkness. And to set the captives free that are bound up sitting or walking in darkness. And in the Hebrew, the understanding of walking means your entire life and how you live it. It's how you're going to live. It's how you're going to die. It's your coming and going. And it's also how you're led. So how you're led, you're going to be led by something in your life. Either you're led by yourself, which is idolatry, or you're led by the devil, which is demonic, or you're led by the Lord, which is awesome. That's everybody's led by one of those three things, okay? And so to walk means my, how I live my life, the essence of my life, how I'll live and how I'll die and how I'm led. But to live means to sit. The actual word means to sit in darkness. And to sit in darkness means that, we, that people are making darkness their habitation. Addiction, pornography, shame, isolation, hurts, pains, fears, 
great mistakes, burning their life down with all kinds of shame and rejection and failures. There's so many people living in that stage all around us. And so this verse, this prophetic word from Isaiah 9-2 says that those who walked in darkness will see a great light and those who live in the land of deep darkness, or another version says, who live in the shadow of death, onto them the light has shined, the new King James says. And so we're gonna talk a little bit about this scripture right here. Why don't you pull this verse up? I like to look at different versions because they each say it in a unique way. Pull up the New King James Version of this scripture. And we're going to talk about this for a moment. Now, no one likes to hear bad news, but the challenge is, is that if we turn a blind eye to the darkness of what's around us and we don't talk about it or understand it, <clears throat> it's going to be a lot harder for us to be motivated to bring light to it. Okay? Now, I don't have to read the news every day to get motivated to bring light to the darkness. I don't have to. But I do need to have a general understanding of just how bad it really is. For example, every 16.2 minutes, somebody will kill themselves. So within this message, two or three people will commit suicide. This time of the year, suicide is so prevalent. It's the highest time of the year because people are lonely, hurting, or they feel like their lives don't matter and no one would care, which is a total lie. And if any of you here have felt like your life doesn't care, I want you to know that it does, and God cares so much about you. He cares so much about you. And so suicide has been rampant. The statistics say that this year, I don't know, 800,000 people alone will kill themselves due to suicide. That's a lot of people taking their life. And the Bible says in John 10, 10, that the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. So when somebody takes their own life or takes another life, especially the life of, the ch of a child, the enemy in that instant, in that moment, wins because he took somebody's life. Now, in the grand scheme of things, we know that God wins and we know that the Lord has overcome the devil in every way by his death on the cross. He defeated death, hell, and the grave. But in a temporary moment, when somebody takes their life, he wins. And we're going to do all we can to keep people from doing that. Every time we gather, we're going to do all we can to keep people from doing that. And so my story, you guys have heard a lot of it. I shared a lot, but maybe some of you haven't heard my story. But I want to tell you a little snippet of, of something about me. When I was born, my Jewish multimillionaire blood father got my 24 year old Greek mother pregnant. They hooked up. It was a one-night stand. I was born out of wedlock. And when I was born, my millionaire blood father didn't want anything to do with me. And so within a year, he checked out and he left. He left my mom and I, and I would ultimately be raised by a single mom. So my mom had to work two jobs. And I was at the babysitter for the first five years of my life every day and every night. And I remember, I can remember those years and how much I hated it. It even trickled into me till about the time I was the age of seven. And I wanted so badly for somebody to rescue me or comfort me or nourish me. I wanted so badly to find somebody to really care for me the way I needed to be cared for. And so what happened was, because of neglect, because of rejection, because of abandonment, my way of overcoming that fear and shame was to take control. And the way that I took control was anybody that I met or people that came into my life, I wanted to please them or measure up for them or be successful in anything that I did so I wouldn't get rejected. So I had this man-pleasing performance thing in my life that ultimately was driven by not being rejected. And I still have to battle that. And I know where it comes from, thank goodness. But even when I preach, even in leading a church, especially in, in this culture, I still have to overcome that because I'm going to get rejected. Somebody's going to not like what I have to say. Somebody's going to say something bad about Rock City Church. And I wish they wouldn't, but it's inevitable. They already have. And when you handle it the right way, it actually makes you stronger. And we'll talk about that because Jesus was despised and rejected. And do you know, Jesus, right off the bat, when Jesus decided 
for the first time to publicly come out and preach, he was instantly rejected. I'm gonna show you that today. And so Jesus would overcome these things. And for me, I remember how desperate I was to get nourishment, to get attention, to have a dad in my life. And it was so hard for me. And out of that place developed this thing of always wanting to be successful and being ultra competitive. So I was a state champion wrestler. I was a conference champion pole vaulter. I always wanted to be successful at anything that I did because I didn't want to be rejected. And it stemmed all the way back to my childhood. And that neglect and that rejection and that abandonment would ultimately lead me to all kinds of other things. Drugs, alcohol, following the Grateful Dead all around the country. I did all those things sitting in darkness, drugs, illicit drugs and alcohol and chasing after other lovers. I did all that stuff because ultimately of this rejection and this abandonment thing that was in my life. And if it wasn't for the mercy and the kindness of the Lord, I wouldn't even be here today because there were so many times that I was sitting in darkness or sitting in the shadow of death and walking in darkness that God in his mercy and his kindness watched over me for the day that would come when the light would shine on my heart and I'd say yes and get born again. And when I got born again and the light shined inside of my heart, I was completely transformed. And so if God could rescue me out of that pit, he can rescue, I believe, anybody else, especially any of you that might be struggling with the same thing today. Because what happened was I took that very same thing. When I got born again, I started going to these churches that taught me what it meant to measure up even further. They solidified what was inside of me. And so my view of the heavenly father was if I was really good and I went to church enough and I worshiped enough and you know, I read my Bible more and I did all the right things, God would be pleased with me. But if I didn't do those things, God would be upset with me. And I'd live in this mentality of always feeling like I'm letting down God, where I'm just never gonna be good enough spiritually. I'm never gonna measure up. I'm never gonna get it. And so I would try harder and I would work harder. And my whole relationship with God was works-based. And if you feel like you're disappointing God and letting him down, there's a very good chance that your faith is built on works and not the love of God. Because God loves us as children. And God lovingly encourages us. And instead of saying, I'm so disappointed in you, you're not good enough. Instead, he says, I'm, you're my son and you're my daughter and I care so much about you and I believe in you. Come on, he's our biggest cheerleader in heaven. And because I know the word and how much he loves and cares about me, instead of falling into depression and anxiety and fear and worry and doubt, I now have the tools and the resources to combat those with his truth and his love and I remind myself that I'm a son and he cares so much about me. He's not the, that dad. He didn't abandon me. He didn't reject. In fact, he came in my darkest hour. And so my story is a classic story of spinning out and going my own way and doing all these things, stemming from abandonment, neglect, and rejection when I was young. But God rescued me. And if he did it for me, he can do it for you. And he can do it for your children. If you have a son or a daughter that's gone off the deep end or gone their own way, he can rescue them too. One in four people in society today, one in four people struggle with mental illness. I'm pretty passionate about mental illness because I read a lot about it in the Bible, how people's minds get dark, how people make poor decisions based on their thought patterns and what they believe and ungodly beliefs and fear, shame, and control. And I'm passionate about it, so I study it. 450 million people are estimated to struggle with mental disorders. And you know what the number one symptom of mental illness is? Anxiety. Anxious. That's why the Bible says, the Lord says, be anxious for nothing. But in all things, stay in a place of prayer and intercession, communion with the Lord, because the devil's always attacking your mind. Right? And so mental illness, one in four people struggle with it, especially anxiety. Do you know that, that half of the people that struggle with mental illness develop it by the age of 14? And a big reason why is due to unhealed trauma and emergencies or crisis in their life. So if a child experiences the loss of a family member at a young age or a traumatic thing in their life, rape, abuse, whatever it is, and it doesn't get healed or dealt with when a child is young, the chances are double that they'll fall into mental illness. 
double. And so mental illness leads to all kinds of sickness, which ultimately comes from fatherlessness. It leads to drug addiction. It leads to suicide. It leads to crime, all kinds of things. It also leads to physical sickness. So when somebody is mentally ill, it often leads to physical illness. And how, because you don't take care of yourself, you don't care about yourself anymore, and you stop eating right and exercising and caring about your life for a long time. And so, for, you know, it's estimated that for every one person that kills themselves, out of that 800,000, another 20 try that don't succeed. I know these aren't popular, fun statistics, but they're real. And what happens when I hear these statistics, let me tell you what it does to me. Instead of me falling into a pit of, oh my gosh, despair, and this is horrible news, which it is, I say, I've got an answer, and I've got a purpose, and I've got a mission, just like Jesus did. Because remember, unto us a child is born, a son is given, wonderful counsel, we're going to call him all these things, his government's going to grow. But if you go back to the verse 2, like I've showed you, it says, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light, and those that are about to die and living in the shadow of death, to them the light has shined. Now, I'm going to go off for just a moment, and I'm going to remind you guys, because this is a twofold message. Because on a Sunday morning, most of the time we have Christians that are here. Most of us are already Christians, okay? But we forget that we're the ones that God marks and ordains to be the answer to that darkness as well. Yes, it's Jesus, of course. But when Jesus comes inside of you, you become something. It's Matthew 5, 14. You become something. Not just a son, but you also become light. Yeah! Yeah! You become the light of the world. And the scripture goes on to say, guess what the light should be doing? I'll paraphrase it for you. The light shouldn't be covered up. I don't want it to shine too bright. Jesus. Instead of Jesus, yeah. Fired up and excited for Christ. We're like hiding under a bushel. It says a city can't even be hidden when it's on the mountain on a hilltop. And that's why he's like, next verse, he's like, You've got to shine it for everyone to see. You can't put it under a basket. It's got to be, give light to everyone in the house. The next verse. In the same way, what shines so bright out of you, your life, your example, the way you live? Yes, it's Jesus in you, but Jesus causes you to live different. So if I was pot smoking, a drunk, all these other things, I wouldn't be a very good example or witness right now. So God sets me free from it, shows everybody around me and all my old friends and everyone I went to high school with and all your old crew that used to run with what transformation looks like. And now the way you live your life is a reflection of Christ. And in turn, what it does is it causes your light to shine and people to ultimately give glory to our heavenly father. So we are the light of the world. We are also an answer. And if we've been complacent, passive, afraid, for any reason, we need to break that out of our life, okay? And so there's a real need in our society, a real need. You know, the Corpus Christi crime index, you know, you know what a crime index is? A crime index is all the various crimes combined and the number of crimes committed in a city compared to the na to national standards with 100 being perfect. You know what Corpus Christi's crime index is? It's 10 out of 100. The crime statistics in Corpus Christi are two and a half percentage points higher than the whole state of Texas. Now you can look all this stuff up on, let's type in Corpus Christi crime index. Now on one side, it would make you say, man, I knew it. This city is really jacked up. I got to get out of here. I don't want to raise my kids in that. <laughs> Last week, when we got home, Amber says to me, we got to really talk about the children's ministry. I said, why? She goes, because there are some really rough kids coming. And it's, it's getting a little messy. I said, praise God. See, because the world standard says, I don't want to raise my kids in that. The kingdom set standard says, God says, I'm going to raise my kids in that. Think about it. Where does God want his children to be raised? Where does he want them to go? You are the light of the world. <laughs> Guess where light needs to shine? 
I mean, it's just so simple. <clears throat> but if you're not careful, you're going to miss it. If you're not careful, you're going to retreat, you're going to isolate, and you'll live in a Christian utopia. There's no such thing. Now, we have a family, we have safety, we have community, we have prayer. No, I don't, wanna, I don't want my kids to be surrounded by so much darkness that they can't overcome it. But at the same time, I want my kids to learn what it means to shine bright in the darkness. And so it's important that you really understand God put you in Corpus Christi for a reason. Now, some of you will move and new people will come. I get it. But if you're living in this city complaining and being negative and can't wait to get out, we've got a problem because God calls people to the places that are uncomfortable so you'll make a difference at your high school, at your college, at A&M, at Del Mar, in your workplace, and everywhere around us. You know the, that Corpus Christi's youngest human trafficking victim that just recently got rescued was eight. Sorry, I mean, this is, this is the, the, sadly what's happening around us. And what drives me crazy is Christians that turn a blind eye to it and do nothing about it. But yet we'll worship, we'll lift our hands, we'll come to church, and we don't, we don't become the answer that God intended us to become. And there's a reason why so many people don't go to church anymore. And really, this message is primarily for those that have been turned off by man-made religion and institutionalized church, because it's the last thing that I want. And, you know, God didn't open up the door for us to, we didn't get the call on Dollar General moving out until we made the decision that we were going to do more for the poor. That's when we made the decision. And when you're doing something right, the rough, the tough, the unchurched, the foul-mouthed, the alcoholics, they're the ones that are going to come, and they're going to bring their kids, and their kids are going to be back there hanging out with your kids. And there's a lot of churches that you can go to where they, those, those types of people will never go, ever. Let's not be that. And we do our best. We have some amazing children's workers. We have the best children's leaders. Trust me, they're spirit-filled. They're alert. They're attentive. They're fired up. And we do our very best. But your kids could hear something that you never wanted them to hear at church in the kids' ministry. I get it. And you know when I hear all the stories about kids getting corrupted at the youth group when they were kids? I was a youth pastor with 100 high school kids. And I had kids come into that youth group that were already jacked up because of jacked up parents sneaking off, doing things they shouldn't do, and other kids would come and they'd experience things they never should have experienced because I had, all, I had 100 kids that didn't know Jesus, well, not all of them, but a lot of kids that didn't know Jesus coming to the youth group. And when they don't know Jesus and they come, the first thing that's on their mind is who am I gonna hook up with and how can I sneak out, skip, or do something I shouldn't do? And then we blame it on the church. It was the church's fault. Really? Because the real answer isn't the church. The real answer is the parents. I would get kids born again, get them lit up. I'd cast the demons right out of them, and they'd go right home to their parents doing crack and smoking pot that night and cursing God and saying, you don't need that Jesus stuff. That was all a lie. That night. It's made me more passionate to do what I do. Louder, more vocal. And so, you know, there's an epidemic with young adults right now. Nearly 30% of young adults ages 15 to 24 are struggling with mental illness and depression. Did you know that? More and more, I mean, entire news articles, just Google it, young adults and depression, mental illness. It's more and more and more, and it's happening more and more. So the kingdom of darkness seems to be advancing more. I wrote this down. Most people don't know how to understand, care for, or treat mental illness. And in turn, they misidentify, misdiagnose, and completely reject them instead of loving, accepting, and letting Jesus do what Jesus does best. We're the answer, guys. You know, the, it's crazy what I'm seeing on the news. Crazy. High school teachers and Christian counselors sleeping with their students. Every, it's, like, I'm, it's like this influx of happen, happening more and more and more on the... Every day, it seems like I'm seeing a new story about that. I'm like, oh man, the enemy's on the move to destroy this generation, but God's on the move to save it. And you're the answer, and you're the ones, we're the ones with the light of Christ that are called to bring answers. We've got a mission, we've got a purpose, and we've got an answer of how we're gonna resolve it. I'll leave you with the last two little things because I think you should know it. 
Have, if you've been watching the news, you'll know that the nation is currently under an opioid crisis. Now, I don't talk about the news, and I don't talk about stuff going on a lot, but every now and then I do, like today. Okay, so an opioid is a, basically a prescription pill, okay? An opioid crisis is, here's the crisis, okay? A hundred people die a day of overdose in our nation. And the numbers of opioid addiction and overdosing have quadrupled in the last five years. The, the drugs are stronger, they're more available, they're coming in new form, and people don't know what to do with it, and they're spinning out and killing themselves. Here's a, a neat fact. I've been talking about pain and pleasure, living a life of pain and pleasure, minimizing the pain and maximizing the pleasure. If you're not careful, most self-help is that, how we can maximize your pleasure and minimize your pain. We all want to minimize the pain and have maximized pleasure, but in the kingdom, you come to the cross and die. In the kingdom, you take up your cross and you're not guaranteed really that you're not going to go through pain and suffering, but you always have the promise of God's delight and pleasure in your life, real pleasure, not illicit sexual erotic pleasure. And so I wrote this down about addiction. Let me tell you something about addiction, okay? This is a great quote. Addiction is a primary chronic and relapsing brain disease. Addiction is a disease, by the way, a brain disease, mental illness, characterized by an individual pathologically pursuing Check this out, reward and or relief by substance abuse and other behaviors. People need relief. They can't sleep, their mind's racing, their problems and the struggles and the challenges, hurts, pains, rejection, all the stuff. But there is an answer for that. And the answer is Jesus Christ. Yeah. I'm telling you guys, I, the best answer that can set you free is Jesus. He can set you free. And so we don't live a life trying to find relief. We live a life finding our satisfaction and joy in Christ and laying our lives down. Amen? Yeah! yeah. And so human trafficking, man, I'm not even going to go there. The, the statistics are staggering, and it's all around us, okay? So even though the darkness seems to be expanding and prevailing, God's kingdom's expanding and, and prevailing, okay? There's this great cosmic battle that's taking place all around us. So Jesus even had to overcome darkness. I'm going to show you a fun little thing from the Bible, okay? You guys doing all right? Okay, I know this is intense. Yes, I know you'd say, man, pastor, you're not preaching a really good Christmas morning message. I'm like, just will you hang in there with me a little bit longer? I promise it's going to get good, okay? So rejection. This is one really big thing. When you're rejected, it causes you to walk in shame, all right? And Jesus had to deal with rejection and chose not to allow himself to be angry or walk in shame. In fact, he took rejection all the way to the cross and crucified it. So <clears throat> I'm going to sum this up for you. In Luke chapter 4, the first 13 verses all talk about the temptation of Jesus. The end of Luke chapter 3 is Jesus getting baptized. Okay, in Luke chapter 3, gets, Luke chapter 4, Jesus is instantly, right after he gets baptized, is, in a sense, led out by the Holy Spirit into the desert so he could what? Overcome the devil, overcome the temptations, and also become physically and spiritually disciplined. So spiritual and physical discipline is important to the Lord, and Jesus would have to learn it early on. So Jesus would be driven out in the desert. The devil would come at him full force to trip him up, and because Jesus was faithful to attend synagogue and read the Torah and the Pentateuch his entire life up until 30. When the enemy came at him, he was able to overcome him with the word, all right? So Jesus overcomes the enemy. The devil leaves until a more opportune time. And then we pick up at Luke 4, 16. When Jesus came to the village of Nazareth, which is his boyhood home, so Jesus grew up in Nazareth, okay, up until 30. He went, notice, as usual. He went, as usual, to the synagogue on the Sabbath, and he stood up to read the scriptures. And the scroll of Isaiah the prophet was handed to him, and he unrolled the scroll, and he found the place where it was written. Now, we preach this a lot. This is everybody's mission statement for their life in the Bible, 
okay? Now, we'll all do it different ways, and we all play different parts in how we do it, from cleaning toilets to evangelizing on the streets. Whatever it is, we all play a part to make this happen. And so Jesus stands up, and he quotes from Isaiah that the Spirit of the Lord's on him, and he's been anointed or empowered or raised up as a leader to bring good news to the poor, freedom to the captives, the blind to see, and the oppressed to go free, and the year of the favor of the Lord, right? He rolls up the scroll, hands it back to the attendant in synagogue, and he sits down. Now, I can only imagine that Jesus read this with such authority and power, and that the room was just awestruck, because when he sits down, everybody's eyes were glued on him. They were amazed, and they were amazed by the gracious words that he had to say. But still, they marveled and they wondered, and they said to themselves, how can this be? Isn't this Joseph's son? And what that's pointing to is ultimately they were rejecting what Jesus had to say. Really, I'll re-paraphrase it for you. What is this guy talking about? This can't be. He's lost his mind. He's crazy. Isn't this just Joseph's son? Isn't he just a man just like us? And so ultimately, they were rejecting Jesus. And Jesus would tell a couple stories from the Old Testament that in turn would cut right to the heart of everybody that was sitting in the synagogue. And he would basically call them out. And in verse 24, he'd say, I tell you the truth, no prophet's accepted in his own hometown. Verse 28, when they heard this, the people in the synagogue were furious. Jumping up, they mobbed him and forced him to the edge of the hill on which the town was built. They intended to push him over the cliff, but he passed right through the crowd and went his own way. So just think about this for a moment. This is Jesus' first public outcoming. Jesus preaches this awesome message or reads the scripture, and then he calls the people out for the rejection of him right off the bat, and in turn, they drive him to the edge of the city, and they want to throw him off the edge of the cliff and kill him. Jesus was rejected right off the bat in his own hometown, okay? Not only was Jesus' rejection a fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy, but he would also face a mob of people wanting to kill him by throwing him off the edge of the cliff. And what we also know when we go over to the book of Matthew is that Jesus had just found out that his best friend John had been in prison. And so when Jesus left Nazareth, we pick up in Matthew chapter 4, verse 12. Matthew 4, 12. When Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he left Judea and returned to Galilee. He first went to Nazareth, which is what we just read, and then he left there and moved to Capernaum, beside the Sea of Galilee, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This fulfilled what God said through the prophet Isaiah. In the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, inside the sea, beside the sea, beyond the Jordan River, in Galilee, where so many Gentiles live, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And for those who lived in the land where death casts its shadow, a light has shined. And from then on, Jesus began to preach, repent for your sin, repent of your sins and turn to God for the kingdom of heaven is near. And so I shared this with you because Jesus, if he hadn't been rejected in his own hometown, if he hadn't faced being killed by those very people, and he still knows that his best friends and priests, he's got a lot of stuff on his mind. He decides, I'm going to move to Capernaum. And in moving to Capernaum by way of the sea, two major trade routes, and where lots of Gentiles live and pass through, he would then bring the message of light. He would fulfill the scripture from Isaiah 9, all because of what happened in his hometown. The rejection is very first time. And instead of being angry, he would continue on point and he would continue on his message. And the message today is that people who sit in darkness, God shines his light, right? But the challenge for so many of us is that people choose to stay in darkness. I remember when I went out to the streets a long time ago in Miami and I was trying to get people born again and rescue them off the streets. And one homeless guy says to me, he says, we don't want to get off the streets. He said, we get three hot meals a day. We live in Miami. The climate's great. We do whatever we want. The last thing we want to do is get off. Just a guy told me this, okay? Now, I know he's not, I know ultimately nobody living in that situation is happy. I know that, okay? 
But I also know that there are people that choose darkness instead of light. And a lot of the reasons why they choose darkness is they're afraid to come out because of shame or what other people will think. And the Bible talks about that. Let's look at John chapter 3, verse 19 and 20. And the judgment's based on this fact. God's light came into the world, but people loved the darkness more than the light. For their actions were evil. All who do evil hate the light and refuse to go near it for fear their sins will be exposed. But those who do what is right come to the light so others can see that they're doing what God wants. And so I come out into the light so that I don't have any shame, any fear. I'm not holding anything back in my life. And this needs to be a place where people can come to the light and not be afraid of being shamed. We've got to break shame out of people's lives. And we can't allow ourselves to have religious dysfunction that looks down on somebody and rejects them based on poor choices that they make. Because what it'll do is it'll keep them there. Yes, some people will not want to be free. Some people will not want to be free. And they'll choose to sit in darkness. But the light is always shining and always making a way for people to come into it. And that's what I realize is that I'm always presenting and making myself available and Rock City Church and you are presenting yourself to make those people or to help those people that are in darkness come out of it and come into the light. And so I know that people will make the choice to stay there. And a lot of the reasons because of shame and fear of being exposed. But you know what? We don't have to expose people. We have to love people. And in turn, when the light shines, it brings comfort and strength into their life. So I'll leave you with this, and then we're going to pray. <clears throat> Luke 1, 78 through 79. This is a really neat story. I like this because this is the story of most likely Mary's uncle, Zacharias. And... Uh, he was a prophet, and basically he's the father to John the Baptist. He was Elizabeth's husband. And Zacharias really doubted the promise from the angel of the Lord, and in turn, God shut up his mouth. There's a whole story in that where he couldn't talk, and then John's born, and then his mouth is open, and he starts proclaiming who John the Baptist is going to be, that John the Baptist is going to prepare the way. He's going to cause people to turn from their sins for the remission of sins. He's going to go before the face of the Lord. There's all this powerful stuff. But then Zacharias prophesies this one powerful thing about Jesus and God himself. And he says this, through the tender mercy of our God, with which the day spring from on high has visited us, to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death. Certainly, he must have known the, the Old Testament promise of Isaiah chapter 9. But check this out. The first thing that Zechariah says that I want all of you to know is that God is merciful. And it's, and it's the tender mercy. I love those two, the choice of words. The tender mercy of the Lord. David said the same thing. Because of the multitude of his tender mercies, God is merciful. And we have to cry out for mercy. I cry out for mercy all the time. Just come on a Wednesday night. Publicly, I cry out for mercy. I do it daily too, but I'm always saying, man, Lord, I feel like I'm missing it or I don't feel adequate or I feel jacked up. And God says, it's not based on your feeling. And even if you have missed it, I'm merciful. And so I say, God, have mercy upon me every day. It's his mercy that's the counter to your failure. You see that? You're going to make mistakes. You're going to fall short at times. For some of us, more often than others. But because of the tender mercy of the Lord, here's what this means. The word dayspring in some of the other versions is the same word for basically the sun popping up on a sunrise. That when there was darkness, suddenly when that sun popped out, it shined light on everything. It brought heat. It brought comfort. And it reveals everything. And so God in his tender mercy shines light from heaven into the midst of darkness. He breaks into your life and drives out the hurt, the pain, the shame, the suicide, the drug addiction. Anything that you can imagine that you struggle with, no one is too far or too bad for the light of the Lord. No one. 
Everybody needs his light and his comfort, especially this time of the year. And so we never back down, ever. And I preach this message not for a bunch of Christians coming to church on a, Christian, on, a, on a Christmas morning. And I know most of us here are. But I preach this message because it's possible somebody here is struggling with hurt, pain, shame, addiction, rejection, neglect. It's possible that we, for some of us, we've allowed darkness to creep heavily into our life. Being in a dark place is not fun. But there's hope and there's answers. There's life and there's love for any of us here that are in a dark place. And we want to pray for you. And I want you to come to Jesus. And I want you to find a family. Whether I'm in and this church is it, there's a family of God all over the world. Yes, there's a lot of churches in this city. You just have to find the one that, that is your speed and is where you want to be. And yeah, I hope that this is it. But what I care more about is that you find the place where you feel challenged, comforted, strengthened, where you can find healing and hope, and that you get into that. That's what I care the most about. This time of the year, the loss of a loved one, finding your life, feeling like your life is valuable, struggling with the value of your life and thinking that people wouldn't even care if you weren't here. Broken homes, broken families, rejection and fear, whatever it is, we want to pray for you. It's one of the best things that I have to offer here is a great group of people that love to stand together with you and pray for you. There's hope here. There's hope in Christ. And then the next thing is, let's be honest. If you've gotten lukewarm about your faith and putting that lamp on a hill for all to see, let's break that out of our lives. I want to be louder. I want to be bolder. I want to be more confident. I want to walk into any store, in any place, at any time. I want to be available when anybody comes to me and says, I need help, that I can point them to Jesus and bring comfort and not be afraid to do it. So if you've gotten complacent or passive about your life, if you're, feeling, if you're not feeling the fire of God in your life anymore, one of the greatest things that you can do is start to give it away. Because when you give it away, God gives you more. Remember that. Yeah. If you just keep coming to church and listening and listening and listening and listening, look, even in the, you know how much ministry I've done in my life when I failed miserably? And God said, get up and go take care. Go feed somebody at the mission shelter. Go take care of somebody. Go love on that person. And even though you don't feel it, you go tell somebody else about how much I've loved you and forgiven you over and 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 over again. How many times has God forgiven us when we failed it or bombed it miserably, right? Let's all stand.